Hello! Welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombers podcast. It's me, your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and today's guest is my friend Tiffany Berkowitz. Tiff is a writer. She is a production human that makes things. She's a creator. And I invited Tiff on the podcast to talk about her experience growing up in an extremely religious household slash community. She was part of an evangelical fundamentalist Christian world slash space. And she had all kind of adventures of the heart, mind, and soul navigating that life. She worked as a missionary for several years, traveling around the globe, talking about God, visiting more than 30 countries. And then upon returning home, she had somewhat of a reckoning, let's say, in which she questioned everything and her life kind of fell apart. That's maybe a bit too harsh. Her life did not fall apart. Her belief system was heavily interrogated by herself and some fissures and fractures occurred. I first met Tiff years ago when I very, very first began sharing my writing on Instagram. We were in group chats with lots of other writers. I've been involved in her life for the last five years or so, but we had like a two or three or four year break where we kind of drifted apart and then she recently popped back onto my radar and she has only very recently began sharing on Instagram again and I was reminded of how much I enjoy her brain and her heart and she's so eloquent and so articulate. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. We talk about religion, but it's in the broader context of exploring the bubbles in which we grow up inside of and how we can find our truth, how we can honor courageously and wholeheartedly the life that deep down we wanna live. We talk about questioning things. It's a big, hearty conversation and Tiff is vulnerable and brave in sharing all of it. So I hope that you enjoy learning about her journey. I found it exceptionally fascinating and I think that you will too. So thanks for being here. Thanks for leaving a nice review. Thanks for subscribing and sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Every little bit helps to spread the word and make a positive impact. So without further ado, here is Tiffany Berkowitz. This episode is brought to you by Cured Nutrition. Cured is the leader in CBD supplementation with an entire line of products designed to take your everyday life to its ultimate potential. Their daily staples are formulated with an in-house clinical herbalist, which has taken the traditional CBD regimen to an entirely new level of optimization. If you're anything like me, you like waking up feeling good and living well. You've probably toyed around with the idea of finding healthy alternatives to jumpstart your morning. Personally, it's why I start my day with Cured Rise, which is their focus supplement. It's a powerhouse blend of functional mushrooms like lion's mane and cordyceps, broad spectrum CBD, and powerful adaptogens. It gives me clean, clear, and sustained energy without any of the caffeine jitters or crash that I get with coffee. After I get going, Aura is next. It's another blend of functional mushrooms, CBD, and adaptogens, but it's got a twist. 
We all know how important it is to sustain our immunity nowadays, and this covers all of my bases. The vitamin D, prebiotics, crucial antioxidants are delivered straight to the gut, which is the foundation of our emotional and physical health. Am I right? Second brain. It's where the majority of our serotonin production and immune function begin, or it keeps everything in check, performing at its best, so I have one less thing to worry about, and I obviously cannot forget Zen. I use it every night. It is certainly why it has become Cure's number one selling relaxation and sleep product. You know the long night spent tossing and turning? Yeah. Not with this stuff. It has ingredients like reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, magnesium, passion flower, broad spectrum CBD. So thankfully, restlessness is something of the past. Cured Nutrition products are your answer for a daily dose of health. Visit curednutrition.com. That's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com. Be sure to use the coupon code LOVEBOMBS and at the checkout you will save 10% off your order. All right, I've pushed the button. We are officially on the ride. Tiffany Berkowitz, welcome to the podcast. Stoked yeah, to talk to you. And I, I did warn you that we have to start with some context so that the listener understands who you are. So what's your deal? Who are you, Tiff? <laughs> how do you describe yourself? Oh, gosh. I don't know how I describe myself anymore, but... People connect to me as a writer. I think that's probably the thing people think of the most when they think about me. So I've been writing on Instagram and other various places for a long time. And I've run a production company for a few years doing video production and ghostwriting. So I'm a creative, professional creative, I guess would be a good description. And lately have been getting more into permaculture, regenerative gardening. So big on that world too, shifting into that space. And I've done a lot of work actually too in, in functional neurology. One of my main clients over the last six years has been a functional neurologist and we've partnered together really closely. So a lot of my work has been in that field too. I think that's a pretty good overview. Yeah. So like in terms of functional neurology, how do, how do you describe like for the, for the listener, but really for myself, like what does that mean? Yeah. So a functional neurologist look, literally looks at the function of the brain. So one of my favorite ways to explain what he does is he, he's a doctor. His name is Dr. Jerome. So he's a practitioner and transitioning into more of a teacher of his content. He, so he works with patients in real time. One of my favorite examples is a woman came to see him who was having a hard time opening her eyes, her eyelids wouldn't open. And because he knows which part of the brain is responsible for which function, he can essentially hack the brain function in other ways. So the same part of your brain that's responsible for opening your eyelids, it also happens to be the same part of your brain responsible for allowing you to be able to walk backwards. So to help her be able to open her eyes, he practiced walking backwards with her for weeks. And over the course of a couple of weeks, she was able to open her eyes. So he works with people who are having some kind of struggle, some kind of struggle with their brain function. 
understands what is going on in that region of the brain and identifies other ways around it that are easier access points uh, to help them strengthen that part of their brain. So that's one example of how he works with clients. But uh, a lot of his work in his teaching world has been mostly helping people understand neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to change over time and with practice. Neuroplasticity means that essentially, this is my favorite way to describe it, if you're standing in a field of tall grass, kind of see your brain that way, and you start walking through the grass and creating a path, and you move through that path over and over and over and over and over, eventually you're going to dig out a little trail for yourself. The grass is going to part, stop growing in that space, and you'll have a little dirt trail that you can follow. The brain does that on purpose to give you easy access to behaviors that you need to access often. It's a, it's a way for your brain to not have to relearn the same things over and over and over again. Essentially, what you're doing is you're paving pathways between neurons in your brain so that that function becomes easy, which is a great tool. But it also can become unhelpful if you are paving pathways that aren't so good. So if I'm thinking the thought, I suck at this, I suck at this, I suck at this over and over and over and over and over again, like math. I, I grew up my whole life like I suck at math. I'm the worst at math. <laughs> and then that was confirmed by everyone around me. And that just kind of became a belief that I held that I was bad at math. And until I actually went back to school and decided to change that way of thinking, decided to tell myself, I can do math. I am good at math. That was a limiting belief I held for myself. That's a really benign belief, you know, for the most part. But those, can, those kinds of thoughts can be even more personal. Like, I'm no good. I'm worthless. You know, we can hold on to those thoughts, those beliefs, and shape our brains to function that way over time. Neuroplasticity tells us that, and this is like the gospel message to me, <laughs> is that if you want to cut yourself off from a belief or a thought or a behavior that's not serving you, literally all you have to do is stop walking down that path and start walking down another one. So every time that thought comes to you, I'm worthless, I'm not good at math, choosing a different thought, anything else, will essentially allow that pathway to grow over and eventually over time close off completely. And in the meantime, whatever thought you do choose, which is maybe I can learn math or I do have value, as you choose that over and over and over, that's where you'll begin paving a new pathway. There's a saying in neuroscience uh, that goes, neurons that fire together, wire together. So as you start firing those neurons, you create a new pathway and that pathway becomes second nature to you. So he, he works with people to help them understand the function of their brain uh, and help them rewire their brains for, for their benefit. And I've been working with him in production, creating books, creating videos, online courses, all kinds of different things to get that news out. <laughs> the good news. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I'm realizing as you were talking, it might be a good lead into some of the topics that I'm hoping to discuss with you today. And I was going to just throw you a softball question of, has there been a time in your life when you were forced to confront some beliefs and <laughs> investigate how those were affecting you or not? 
No, actually, I grew up with a perfect <laughs> worldview. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I realized I, I read something the other day about how, like, even kids that grow up with perfect parents and a perfect life, like, that's actually really troubling because you would then go out as an adult and be confronted with this very indifferent, imperfect experience. Mm. And so you're you're not prepared for life, even with a perfect upbringing. Mm. That's a great point. There is no such thing. Yeah. But so no matter for, who you are. Yeah. For real, like, I mean, where do you want to dive into this stuff? Like for, for those listening, Tiff has had an interesting life in terms of childhood experience with religion and kind of, and correct me if I'm wrong at any point, but like kind of leaving that version of your life to discover a new version and implement that. And so yeah. that's kind of why I invited you on today, hoping to gain some insights into like, what was that like? I've not done that. How do you, mm. how did you go? What do you have to share? What do you have to to say? So I don't know where yeah. to begin. Like, where do you think we should begin? I'll give a little context. I grew up in a really small town in California and small mountain town, central California, uh, mostly white, almost entirely Christian, conservative, Republican. I think that's a fair, you know, obviously there are exceptions, but I think that's a fair generalization. And really, that was my whole framework for reality. So my parents grew up in the church. My mom was a children's pastor. I was at the church at least three days a week, every week, my whole life. And we bounced around a little from denomination to denomination, but we mostly grew up in like fundamentalist evangelical Christian faith, which at the time I wouldn't have categorized it as fundamentalist or evangelical because it was just reality to me. I don't know if you've seen that. TV show, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So it's basically, it's a comedy series about this girl who gets rescued out of a bunker and she was trapped down there with like three other women and a crazy religious pastor (laughs) who was indoctrinating them with his, it's John Hamm, it's hilarious, uh, indoctrinating them with his with his teachings and then she gets rescued out of this bunker which first of all she didn't even know she needed rescuing out of anything because to her that was reality and then she moved to new york (laughs) and so her whole experience is just being mind blown by new york like i I what is she lives with this flamboyant gay black man and just cannot make sense of him and i really i watched that for the humor and i found myself weeping (laughs) because I resonated so much with that experience, the feeling of not even knowing that you were in a bubble and then your bubble bursting around you. So I I grew up in a really conservative white town and, and everyone I knew believed the same as me. So just the same as I don't ask, are the trees really green? (laughs) Because the trees are green everywhere I go. I never even thought to ask any questions about what I was being taught because everywhere I went, everybody believed the same thing about reality. So of course my little kid brain 
concludes that that's what everybody believes everywhere about reality. So it never really even dawned on me to ask questions. So since it never dawned on me to ask questions, and because my personality type is pretty ambitious, driven, I have a tendency to want to perform and succeed and do well, I threw my all into it and really made my whole life about being the best Christian I could be, which led me into full-time missionary work for several years. Before I go into that, (laughs) we can pause there and I can let you ask any questions if you have any, because that's a whole story in and of itself. I mean, honestly, I'm just enjoying the, the story. We can any, keep going. Yeah, anywhere you'd like to take it is fine. Uh, I find myself just asking, like, and then what happened? And then what happened? Um, <laughs> but yeah, maybe like once the general summary is relatively complete, then we can start interrogating specific components that you feel called to discuss. Cool. Yeah. So I, you know, I was talking to a friend about this the other day and I was watching, I don't know if this name might not mean anything to you if you didn't grow up religious, but John Piper is one of the, I think, strongest voices in fundamentalist Christianity. And when I say, for anyone who hasn't heard the term evangelical, fundamentalist, they mean two different things. So fundamentalist, and I don't want to position myself as an expert on this by any means, but from my understanding, fundamentalists are Christians who believe certain things about the Bible and Jesus. Uh, So for example, a fundamentalist believes that the Bible is literal. So they have a literal interpretation of everything written in the Bible, meaning, you know, some people read Genesis and they see it as a poem about the creation story fundamentalist would say, no, that literally happened in seven days. God created this first and this next and this next. So fundamentalist believes in, in the Bible as literal and inerrant. It is completely infallible. It's the divine word of God. There are no mistakes. Fundamentalists and evangelicals both believe in evangelizing. So a big part of the evangelical faith is to spread the gospel to all nations. It, it's part of the charismatic movement. There's, there's a few different sects underneath the evangelical faith, but evangelism is a huge part of it. And another thing that is really important to both of those groups of people is salvation through Christ alone. So the belief that the only way that you can have access to God is through salvation with, like with Jesus. And that means, especially to the evangelicals, that you pray the sinner's prayer, you repent, you accept Jesus into your heart and believe in him as your savior. And that means that now you're not going to hell, you're going to heaven to be with God. So that kind of defines the fundamentalist evangelical mainline and sometimes called old line Christians don't necessarily believe all those things. So I don't lump it all together as Christian. My experience was specifically evangelical and fundamentalist, but that's most Americans experience because uh, that's most American Christians. Most American Christians are some form of fundamentalist or evangelical, meaning that they believe there is a heaven. They believe there is a hell. They believe 
the Bible is inerrant and the word of God. And they believe that in order not to perish for eternity, you have to have salvation through Jesus Christ. So evangelical or so evangelizing becomes really important. And I remember hearing that. I remember it the day I, I really connected with that. I was five years old and I was at church and they showed one of those videos with the African children with the flies on their face and, you know, pull at your heartstrings and, and shared the message that sadly everyone around the world who doesn't know the truth, who doesn't know that Jesus came to earth to save them from hell is going to burn in hell for all of eternity. And that day I, when my mom picked me up from church or from Sunday school, I was out on the playground playing with my friends. I told her that I want to be a missionary when I grow up because I couldn't, even at that time, five years old, I couldn't understand how you could do anything else. So this is one of my favorite stories to tell. So that day we go home and a couple of hours after church, my mom walks into the kitchen and sees me (laughs) standing by the trash can, throwing sandwiches in little Ziploc baggies just into the trash can. She's like, Tiffany, Nicole, what are you doing? And I turned around with my innocent face, you know, caught red-handed and I just start crying And she's like, what are you doing? She looks into the trash can and there are just peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and Ziploc bags piled up in the trash can. And I'm just crying and managed to get out to her. Like, I just want the kids in Africa to find something good to eat. (laughs) Because in my mind, the trash went to Africa where they looked (laughs) for garbage to eat. Because that was the narrative that had been told to us. Like, here are these poor countries all around the world who don't have any food, who don't know the story of Jesus, who are all going to burn in hell. So I knew that from the age of five years old that I wanted to be a missionary. And really, I think even now, a lot of my pain around the fundamentalist evangelical church is that I took it seriously. I took it so seriously in a way that not a lot of people around me were. I couldn't and I still can't understand how if you believe that, if you believe that anyone who doesn't know what you know will suffer for all of eternity, how can you go to your job? How can you go out to eat with your family? How can you take a vacation? How can you do anything other than evangelize? Um, I was listening to and this is full circle, I brought up John Piper. So John Piper is a a really strong voice in the fundamentalist faith. And his son, I think he has five sons, one of his sons walked away from that religion. And something he said the other day in his TikTok really resonated with me and, and made me, I think, gave me a way to reconcile this in a, in a new way. Uh, he essentially posited the idea that most people who think they believe that people who don't know Jesus will burn in hell for eternity don't actually believe that. Uh, because if, if you did, 
you couldn't do anything else. And I think that that is a little bit more reassuring to me to think that maybe these people don't really believe it in their heart of hearts, because the only other option in my mind is that they're just horrible, awful people who don't care about anyone else. Uh, and that really was, was hard for me growing up to, to reconcile, like, if this is the truth, if what you're telling me is that I know the truth about reality and what I know is saving me from eternity in hell, and there are millions of people all around the world who are dying every single second and don't know this truth, how could I possibly give my life to anything else? So I was resolved really early on to, to give my whole entire life to preaching the gospel and becoming an evangelist and spreading the good news out of, out of true heartbreak and true compassion for, for the people that didn't know, <laughs> because that was my frame of mind. So imagine like as a, I'm, I'm thinking about your parents, they're fundamental evangelicals. They're raising this child who says to them as a five-year-old, like mommy, daddy, like when I grow up, I want to be a missionary. I'm, am I correct in assuming that for them, that is like the gold standard? That's like basically saying like, I'm going to win the Nobel Prize or I want to be a Absolutely. doctor or a lawyer for a lot of different families. It's like, we've done, we've done our work. Like our job is done. We're, we're raising young saviors. Absolutely. They're, I mean, they were so proud of me. Everyone, my whole community, my whole town, all of my friends. Truly, like, even as I step back and look at it, there was, there is almost a celebrity culture around, there's a joke in the evangelical Christian community that if you're a pastor, a worship leader, or a missionary, like, you're a celebrity in the church, because it's true. <laughs> uh, right. You're, because you are, you're doing the ultimate work, which is to spread the good news, to spread the gospel. And if you're not one of those people who is in, on the front lines, then you're supporting them financially or you're supporting them through prayer. It's kind of seen as like, those are our frontline people and everything we do is to support that effort, to support that. So absolutely. My parents were, were so, I mean, my mom, when I, when I ended up going out and, and doing missions work for three years, she printed a whole book of every blog I ever wrote and, you know, <laughs> bound it together for me. And they were so proud. And, and that really also feeds a lot of the momentum for those people to know that I am celebrated and accepted. And, you know, even from an egoic place, like worshiped, put up on a pedestal, seen as poster child, Christian, what we all aspire to, what we're all so proud of. Absolutely. That was my experience. And so I got a lot of affirmation from that choice. I think if I may just interject briefly, so in an attempt to summarize this and perhaps relate it to those listening who might not connect with the religious component, I think though it's important to highlight that what you were describing could be applicable to any variety of context in a familial cultural society dynamic. So in your case, being a, a religious evangelical brought you prestige, belonging, acceptance, love, adoration, respect, right? Mm -hmm. And in different communities or different family units, 
It might be the case that being stoic brought you that. It might be that um, being abusive or a bully brought you that. And so I just wanted to highlight this dynamic. And like, you're kind of like a young fish in a fishbowl being taught about the world, being um, exposed to ideas that were just accepted because everybody in your fishbowl was like, yeah, like this is how the world works. And so you grew up in that context. And I think mm-hmm. it's helpful because it frames kind of what happens next later in the story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you're this tenderhearted, compassionate woman who truly believes in saving the world essentially Mm -hmm. and liberating souls from suffering and then you go out into the world as an evangelist how do you what's the phrase (laughs) evangelist evangelist and uh so maybe do you mind talking a bit about that what that was like and what it taught you Mm -hmm. yeah so I in 2009 I had go, I had gone on a couple of small mission trips before this but I didn't dedicate myself to full-time missions until 2009 and so pretty much fresh out of high school I did a year of college and then decided again how how can I be here studying world literature when people are perishing in hell so I dedicated myself to full-time missions in 2009 I went out with the organization called the world race not the amazing race (laughs) i always have to disappoint people when they when i say that um the world race is an 11 month mission trip to 11 different countries and i did that trip with them twice with uh with a short period of time in haiti right after the earthquake so it was about a three-year excursion to over 30 different countries and Again, there was a lot of support, a lot of celebration. It was, a, it was a fundraising trip. And like I said before, since this is the main mission of the evangelical church, people were happy to get on board and support me. So I went out for three years and our, our work was a mix of things. We, we did a lot of humanitarian work. So building medical clinics, working with women who had been trafficked into the red light district, teaching them some basic life skills to, you know, help them start new lives for themselves if they wanted to. But we also did a lot of preaching, a lot of teaching in churches, a lot of evangelizing. And that experience, on top of, you know, on top of just being exposed to so much injustice, which was in and of itself enough to process for the next decade of my life, you know, because we were, we were in places like in the Philippines, we stayed at this dump site, literally a dump site where thousands of people, refugees had moved into because they had been forced out of their homes and they had made home in the dump site. They'd used all of the garbage around them to construct houses and schools and, and they were, living and operating fully there. We were in places in Africa where kids didn't have but one meal every other day. We were in places in Southeast Asia where children were being trafficked. So I was immediately, I was 20 years old, and I was immediately exposed to kind of every single social injustice happening in the whole world. (laughs) And on top of that, it was 
under the pretense that I would save them all. <laughs> yeah. That's 10 years of trauma <laughs> to unpack. Yeah, that feels um, overwhelming to me just to hear that. Like, yeah. As, a, as like was. an adult, it's like, wow. Like, I can't imagine myself at 20 going out into the world and facing those things and feeling deeply that I was in control of fixing it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I went out so excited. I went out so ready and feeling so equipped and, and feeling like I have the message <laughs> and boom, I'm just like slammed into reality. So there were a couple of things I think that started unraveling for me on that trip. Somehow I was, I was able to maintain for the most part, I would say I was able to maintain my faith for the majority of that experience, but there were big, big, big questions that started hitting me in the face. Questions like, what do I really have for anyone? <laughs> because I'm watching people starve and I'm watching people not get the medical attention they need. And I'm seeing entire communities of people under-resourced and rejected. I, I'm in Thailand and I'm teaching this woman how to make jewelry so she can get out of the sex trafficking ring. But politically, there's, there's, no, there's no advantage or resource for women here. How, how do I do anything about that? So I was faced with really big questions that you have to sit with if you're supposed to be the savior of the world. <laughs> but on top of that, I think the thing that was the most surprising to me and the most difficult to wrestle with was the more I traveled and the more people I actually connected to as people and stopped, you know, it, I think what that whole experience did was it turned those people who were bound for hell into just people. And I was able to have conversations and connect. And what I started seeing was that a lot of these people who didn't know Jesus were joyful and okay. <laughs> and even had their own way of worshiping God and even had their own way of thinking about reality and divinity which up until that point, the way that that had been explained to me by everyone I knew was anyone who doesn't know Jesus and anyone who isn't saved by Jesus is miserable, lost, wayward, stuck in their sin, and in need of salvation. And if they tell you they're not, they're just hiding. They're just hiding it. And, and they may not even know how lost and miserable they are. So even though I knew that there were people in the world who didn't believe, I was trained to see them as lost and in need of the truth that I had. But that stopped working when I started meeting people who radiated a joy that even I didn't feel and radiated like a sense of inner peace and true love. Like I'm seeing people truly be able to love and that's not supposed to happen in my mind. If you don't have Jesus, you should not be capable of love or joy or peace. So that, I think that 
is what really started to unravel me as I came home. Yeah. So when I came home, I was, I hit probably the lowest depression I'd ever hit in my life. <laughs> yeah. Okay. A lot. Maybe we could pause there and that will be the next chapter of the podcast uh, in a few minutes. But I relate to that in terms of traveling being a catalyst for expansion on every level. Mm. Like I didn't have the religious framing, but I do distinctly remember going places and seeing people and judging them as being poor or on. And so assuming they're unhappy, assuming that they like that their lives aren't fulfilling or good. And then having it be completely blown out of the water at every, at every scale mm-hmm. of like some of the poorest people I met seem to have the richest lives when measured mm-hmm. on a different frame. And that to me was a head fuck of like, but also an opportunity to get curious and start asking big questions myself of like, why are you happy here? Like, what is happiness then, right? From that, from that follow-up context. And, and why don't I understand what happiness is? Uh, why, are, why are these people so seemingly so much more content with so much less than I have? And like, how do I get some of that? Like, what are they, what are they drinking or thinking or like, what's that sauce that, that is creating this, right? Um, and so I think... you think of that, that Mother Teresa quote, we think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked, and homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest poverty. We must start in our own home to remedy this kind of poverty. Yeah. Good. She said she had some good things to say. And she was there doing it it, you know yeah okay so you you go away you have your kind of worldview collapsed let's call it or i and on some level to continue that metaphor you were like you grew up in the fishbowl suddenly Mm -hmm. you go to other fishbowls you meet other fish and you're like wait what's then you go back to your wait you're not you don't need my salvation (laughs) like yeah, and you and you start to question things. Let's call it that at a simple at a simple summary level. And so you you come home and you're depressed. And why are you depressed, or what is going on? Yeah, yeah. I think at that time, I just didn't know what to do with any of it. I, I didn't have. <laughs> this is how immersed in it I was. I still wasn't really questioning my faith at that point. But I was lost in it. I I just couldn't reconcile anything. It it was like complete dissonance, complete disorientation. So I came, I came back to the United States, which was total culture shock. And what I, what I experienced first was a lot of anger at the church because I came back from seeing everything that I had seen and one of the major conversations that was happening in the church was the anti-gay conversation. That was just really big culturally at that time. It still is, but it was, it was just even more inflamed then. 
I used to work actually at a mega church that was one of the main speaker outers <laughs> against Prop 8, which was the right to marry anyone you want in California. I worked worked at a mega church that that was hosting panels actively against it, and so it was a big conversation. And seeing that, seeing that most American Christians were hung up on that instead of everything that I had just witnessed was also hard to deal with. So came back really angry at my own body of believers, uh, but mostly I just came back with without a clue of what to do next. How do I, how do I even begin to uh, reconcile what I've just seen with an entire lifetime of being told something very different? You know, it's not, when I think about actually neurology in this conversation, by nature, animalistically, we're always either moving away from pain or towards pleasure in every decision. So when we hold on to belief, it's for either one of those reasons. It's either because that belief is keeping us from pain or moving us toward a positive experience. And in my case, you know, and in, and in any case, whether you're raised religious or, or whatever it is that you're brought up in, whatever cultural paradigm you're brought up in, it becomes safe. It's a safe place to be. It's where you have acceptance. It's where you have validation. It's where you have community. You have reinforced beliefs around you. And it provides you with a sense of belonging, which is what we all want. And so when that gets shaken, it's not something you can let go of easily. It's it's your foundation. It's what makes you feel safe. <laughs> so to just abandon it to the wind immediately, I think is really difficult to do, mostly because you don't have anything in place to replace it with. <laughs> if I let go of everything I've ever been told about reality, I'm going to float off into space. <laughs> I have no anchor. I have no foundation. So I think it was that feeling of, I don't think I can trust anything I was told, but I have no idea what to trust. And at the same time, I was still working for that organization and I was working at PF Chang and I was serving Chinese food. Like, how do I just go from that to serving Chinese food? Like, how do I, what do I do with my life? What is life for? If my whole world was built up around, this is the point of life is to spread this message. And if that isn't what, is so it sent me into a really dark place i just really couldn't find grounding and i also didn't have a lot of people asking the same questions around me mm. there were not i didn't have community you know now there's a term that goes around now that's uh called deconstruction it's what a lot of christians are talking about when they talk about their process of questioning their beliefs they're deconstructing their faith. It's not my favorite word to describe the process, but I think it's part of it. Like there was no one doing that. There was no one around me deconstructing their faith. There, there, that word wasn't a word really when I was asking the questions. So it also wasn't safe for that reason. I didn't have another community of people I could fall back on. 
So it was a really lonely time. And also within fundamentalist faith, it is seen as really dangerous to doubt. So they'll tell you you can doubt and they'll tell but what they really mean by that is that you can doubt and ask questions as long as you don't doubt or ask these certain questions. And in that small pile of questions is you cannot doubt or question the inerrancy of the Bible, and you cannot doubt or question the existence of heaven and hell, and you cannot doubt or question that Jesus is the Savior by whom you get to go to be with God in heaven. Those are kind of the three things that as soon as you start doubting those things, you're out. You can doubt anything else, all the other like secondary tertiary theologies. And, you know, that's why we have 400,000 something denominations of Christianity. <laughs> um, but those are kind of the main ones that if you doubt those, you, you can, you're exiled from the church. And those were the questions I was asking, which felt really scary because it felt like I was threatening my entire community, and thre threatening where I had found acceptance and what I thought the meaning of life was. Uh, it wasn't until I went back to school and I was back in a world lit class and we started reading old, old world literature. And I remember reading Agamemnon. And I'm, I'm reading it going, this is so much like the Jesus story, which doesn't make any sense to me because this was written before the Jesus story. <laughs> uh, so that was the first time I think finally it kind of snapped for me that, that maybe my worldview was just that, a worldview that had never occurred to me before that the reality I was raised in was just one way of seeing the world. So that, that began like my true quest to kind of untangle myself from what I'd been raised in. Yeah. I remember talking to you years ago about something around this topic. You were, you're sharing a little bit of your story and, and you said something to the effect of, I just had no idea what to believe about the world. Mm -hmm. And I remember receiving that and, and imagining myself in that predicament and feeling entirely terrified and overwhelmed. Of like, mm -hmm. at a fundamental level, I do not understand how life works anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like everything had been from a taken place away. so certain yeah. to like, Yes. Yeah. Compounded with, oh, uh, I'm judging myself for thinking these thoughts and I'm, and I sh probably shouldn't be thinking these thoughts. So I need to stop thinking these thoughts, but telling myself to stop thinking these thoughts reinforces me thinking about these thoughts. I'm just <laughs> thinking about stopping them now. Right. And so that's a cyclical <laughs> perpetuation of something you're not supposed to be doing. And then I guess from that goldfish thing is like, you're, you were fearful of getting kicked out of the, the bowl, right? Where all mm -hmm. your friends, family, past, childhood, everything is kind of foundationally created your entire life. Is that mm -hmm. a fair? Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. It's scary. And, and, and the shame of it too, you know, cause I felt like I was betraying God too mm. by asking the questions I was asking. So there was almost a feeling of needing to repent for the, for the fact that I was doubting some of these things. And that's a, that's a really interesting stronghold if you not only are you questioning your beliefs, but you're questioning your beliefs in a way that would offend God. That's intense. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I just, I fully agree with that statement. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so you were taught just the process of having these thoughts is an insult to God. Insult to God, the work of the devil. So, you know, I was, part of me was still actively battling against them thinking this is evil. This is evil thoughts that are, that Satan is attacking me with. It's like seen as spiritual warfare. So you believe that you had some element of the devil living inside of you and coming through you in the, the way you were thinking about the world. Or like influencing me in some way. Like mm. if I give in to these doubts and these questions you know spiritual warfare is is a term used a lot in the charismatic movement it's the uh, it's the idea that there are angels and demons god and satan and at all times we are experiencing the influence of both so it's this it's kind of a mind fuck you're just you're asking questions, you're doubting, and it seems logical and reasonable to doubt and ask questions. And after you have life experiences that cause you to question, it seems like you should. And at the same time, you're, you're still kind of believing that that's an attack from the devil. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Crazy stuff. So, it took me a while. It took me it took me a few years to even feel comfortable enough to ask questions. I actually ended up meeting so I grew up in California and I did that trip for three years and then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, actually to take a job with the organization I traveled with. And I met my ex-husband and he was the first Christian I had ever met who, who asked questions. He asked really daring questions. He asked questions I couldn't believe he was asking and still somehow could call himself a Christian. So I found that, I mean, I was just enchanted. I just couldn't believe that, that you could do that. And he he really, you know, we're still great friends and I, I still am so, so, so thankful for his presence in my life because we, we say this about each other. We said this after we split up, like we woke up together <laughs> and, and he really taught me how to think. He really taught me. I had just never activated critical thinking in my life. I never had a reason to, <laughs> and I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to think critically. And he is such a critical thinker. He's such an intellectual, such a researcher, deep diver, that watching him live that way just ignited something in me. 
And I learned that I am actually very much that way too, but was never given the opportunity to flourish in that part of myself. So when we got together, we just could skyrocket into these conversations and ask questions that I just were blowing my mind. I just couldn't believe it. And, and it was giving me language and space to just start unraveling everything and, and pulling it all apart with a person who was safe. He gave me that, that safety, I think, that I needed in order to start to peel back those questions. And it was really after a year of marriage that I came to him and said, I don't think I believe in this anymore, which to any other Christian man (laughs) might have been extremely threatening. In fact, a lot of his friends even said to him, like, it's, it's so amazing that you stayed with her, you know, even after even after that, so it's definitely, you know, a belief within the Christian faith that you must be equally yoked, that you must marry within the faith. But he was so, you know, he was like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> he just, he understood. And that gave me, yeah, that gave me, I think, the safety to start to ask questions. And I think that that's, I don't know if I, if I could have otherwise, you know, again, I think just from a pure animal place, needing the feeling of belonging and acceptance is such a strong driver. Yeah. That we really have to have community to be able to start unpacking things like that. Definitely agree with that. It sounds like you were confronting the potential ramifications of losing everything and we're kind of checking in with him about that. And he was like, no, I'm here. I got you. And so it created some safety for you to, explore more dangerous beliefs it sounds like yeah and it gave me so like soon after that I I had become kind of a known blogger in that world and that's kind of where my writing really started to flourish I uh, one of the requirements when we were out doing mission work was to keep a regular blog because we were fundraising and all of our supporters wanted to know what was going on So I kept a regular blog and through that garnered a lot of response. People loved reading my stories. (laughs) And so I had kind of started to develop my writing career there. And I had, you know, tens of thousands of people reading my missionary blog. And then all of a sudden I was, I didn't think I was a Christian anymore. (laughs) And in order to keep writing, that was really what it was for me was I realized I am not going to be able to keep writing if I don't just come out with it and say it and tell everybody, because otherwise I'm going to be pretending and writing was such an important avenue for me, for my self-expression, for me to put words the way I was seeing the world. It wasn't something I was willing to sacrifice. So I released a series of blogs to my community of readers explaining the process that I had been through and my conclusion to walk away from the Christian faith, which didn't go over very well. <laughs> really? <laughs> Shocking, I know. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. so I, I lost, I would say at that time, pretty immediately, 
like 90% of my friends and family cut me off completely still to this day, most of them. So that was brutal, really brutal and sad. You know, it's still sad to me that that's all it took for me to lose so much of my community. I understand it because, you know, I think even when I think about humankind as like a tribal people, (laughs) if you are a tribe that specifically gathers around something and then someone in the tribe, like that nut job over there is like, no, I don't believe in this anymore. The likelihood of the whole tribe leaning in and going, okay, that's okay, versus then you're out of here, you know, is low. So it's a threat to the collective. It's uncomfortable. And I think, too, going from poster child, missionary, Christian girl, like, who we're all proud of and we're all rooting for and we're all supporting and we're all funding, you know, people put their money behind me was yeah probably just too much for most people mm. so that was a lonely experience it's a very lonely experience what mm. i just I, I should have stated several times during this thank you for sharing your truth and i acknowledge your story and i um i really appreciate you doing so in such an open and vulnerable way so uh, apologies mm-hmm. for not doing that earlier and part of me just is completely enraptured in your life tale and just wants to keep knowing more. So like one question that just came to mind was like, what was, what was it like the day before you posted that final blog or like the moment before when you're like, I'm about to push this button that is very, very likely to detonate a bomb on my entire life. Like, what, is, mm-hmm. what did that feel like? How did you talk to yourself in that moment? if you remember. Yeah. I, before I publicly released that information, I called my parents because I wanted to honor them with that conversation first. Mm -hmm. And they had no idea that I was asking the questions I was asking. So there was really emotional, heartfelt, tearful phone calls we had. (laughs) And at the time, my, my relationship with them has since changed and, and really grown into something beautiful. But my mom, her first question, <laughs> she's weeping and weeping, you know, tears of a mother who just doesn't know where she went wrong. And, right. and I remember her asking me, the first question she asked me was, are you worshiping Satan now? <laughs> Sweet woman. She just couldn't see anything else. You know, it's like, you're either worshiping Jesus or you're worshiping the devil. That's her paradigm or the world's her paradigm. Um, and my dad, you know, he listened for a while and, and just said, he's, he's, he's more of kind of a rational thinker. And, and he's like, I hear your questions. They make sense. But essentially, I'm comfortable in my faith and I, I want to hold on to my beliefs. So I'd had those conversations with them. And I think that that released me in a way because even though they were scared and hurt and confused and didn't understand, there was still love there. There was still, it gave me a feeling of, I do still have home somewhere in some way. 
So I think between my husband at the time and my parents expressing to me that even though they're praying for my salvation, they still love me. I felt like I had enough of a support system. And really, when I think about those moments before hitting publish on those blogs, I feel like I was feeling two things. One was, I really naively believed that people would still stick around. I don't think I had any clue how bad it was going to be. Also, there's a quote that I can't remember, but it's like kind of the the idea that in order for you to change the feeling of discomfort and frustration with your current state has to overwhelm the fear of what could happen. And I was just there. It was, it was a feeling of, I could lose everything. I could lose my whole community. I could be rejected. This could go very badly, which it did. But the feeling of not being able to be honest about where I am and, and not being able to ask the questions I really am asking. I looked down the line into my future and didn't see, didn't see one. Like how, how do I, if this is where I am, these are the questions I'm asking. These are the feelings I'm feeling. These are the changes going on in me. And I'm going to keep that to myself. Like I look down the line at my future and there's not one. Maybe, you know, I've talked to a lot of my friends who have come out with their sexuality And it's kind of a similar experience in a way, because you recognize like, this is true for me. This is who I am. And staying in the closet, which is kind of what it felt like, is not a future for me. It's, it's more pretending. It's exhausting. It's, it's more not getting to be myself in the world. So I think it was the feeling of, wanting relief, wanting to have the permission to exist in the world as myself and not have to pretend in order to garner affection. Mm. So, yeah, I think that that desire overwhelmed my fear of what could happen. So I felt strong, actually. I felt I felt empowered and strong to be able to say, I got to be honest with you, this is where I'm at because otherwise I'm just shoving myself in a small space. If I would have known how bad it was going to go, I think I would have been more scared. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess in that way, naivete is a strength, right? Mm -hmm. I was listening to this podcast the other day and this woman was, uh, was talking about being the only black girl, like where she lived and, um, and that, you know, she traveled to these other towns where that were very racist, but she had no idea that they were racist and she had no idea that they were looking at her because she was black. She said, I just thought they were scared of my basketball skills and that I was going to destroy, <laughs> destroy them on the court. And then she was talking That's about amazing. that same idea of like, I, I didn't know any better. And so I didn't know that I should be scared. And so I didn't know that I shouldn't score all the points and win the game or whatever. And it sounds similar to you of like that mm-hmm. naivety or ignorance well and the the belief in the message that they preach acceptance love grace (laughs) (laughs) i believed it (laughs) yeah 
Yeah. And so like the way I've described it before is like, love yourself enough that you're okay disappointing other people. And it sounds mm-hmm. like the, the fear of living that life, of living a life of a future that you literally couldn't even see was scarier than pushing mm-hmm. post on that blog. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so like, where are you now? I mean, what what is your relationship with religion or how did that going from there to transitioning into a new world look for you? I mean, obviously you're, you've got a memoir in you that is going to be hot fire one day if and whenever it comes <laughs> out, but you know, yeah. like what did yeah. it, what did it teach you? Like, is there anything that comes to mind or just, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot that's coming to mind, but it's like, mm-hmm. yikes. That sounds like a, a lot. <laughs> was a lot yeah so a couple of things come to mind one thing I'll say is that while releasing that truth (laughs) the series of blogs into the world did disconnect me from a lot of the community I grew up in it attracted people into my life who were in a very similar place I was getting Privately, (laughs) I was getting a bunch of private messages like, hey, thank you. Me too. I've been asking this too. Do you think God loves gay people? You know, just questions that people were wrestling with personally and didn't have an outlet for. So I started being able to build a community that was so life-giving to me. And over the last That was about seven years ago that I released those blog posts. Over the last seven years, that community of people, being in that community of people, has even further expanded my questioning and taught me to ask questions I wasn't even thinking to ask. (laughs) So now, for example, I still didn't know that evangelicalism, fundamentalism, were movements. (laughs) In my mind, they were and always were reality. So I had just assumed they'd been around since the dawn of man, because if they were a reality, how could they not have been around since the dawn of man? So it only recently came to my attention that these were movements that actually happened in the 1800s and early 1900s. (laughs) And you actually can peg them to certain dates and certain people and certain cultural influences and certain political influences. So where I am now is I've been able to begin to form context around my upbringing at first. And this is what I see in a lot of people who are quote unquote deconstructing their faith um, is there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of anger, the feeling of betrayal, like how could this, group of people lie to me, you know, is kind of the feeling, fill my head with this narrative that I now realize is so untrue or, or, you know, however, however much you're, you're asking questions, there's a certain feeling of betrayal, a certain feeling of anger, which I understand. But I think, I think now where I'm at is I feel a lot of compassion for the experience and I see how culture, politics, power all entangle up with 
religion. You know, it was such a separate religion and, and the relationship with God was such a separate from everything experience for me. It was like, it's not influenced by culture. It's not political. It's not tied up in any of that. It's divine. It's transcendent. It's separate from all of those things. But understanding that colonialism and evangelicalism are all wrapped up together and that it actually has a lot to do with white, powerful settlers bringing what they saw as enlightened, more evolved truth to people. It gives me, A, a lot of compassion from people who believe it, and also, I think, a less pointed anger. My anger isn't just, my anger, my frustration, whatever I feel about it isn't just pointed at religion anymore. It's kind of, I'm starting to understand and see the context of the mindset. Like, in order to... In order to be an evangelical, in order to be a fundamentalist, and I wouldn't say this is true of all Christians because there are certain denominations of Christians that believe very much in the dialogue and the questioning and the wrestling and and, and interpreting the Bible as a piece of literature that has a context and understanding Jesus' teachings as a time period that has a context. So there are lots of Christians who, who take that approach. Um, but the evangelical fundamentalists don't. And I think that understanding that that is really wrapped up in political movements has given me a lot of mercy and compassion for that group of people. So I feel like where I am now is a little bit, I, I feel inspired to make that distinction, <laughs> to to like make people aware whether you choose to hold on to that belief or not, to make people aware of the interconnectedness of all of that, to, I think in general, you know, I can't speak for all religion, but, but it's all, it's all tied up in culture. It's all tied up. Religion is culture. Religion is a bunch of people coming around together, trying to make sense of God, trying to make sense of themselves, trying to make sense of reality. Do you know anything about spiral dynamics? No. Okay, so cool. I'm not going to explain it all because I'm not that expert on it, but spiral dynamics is essentially the study of human consciousness, human collective consciousness. So it's a theory, and the theory is that the collective human consciousness over time has evolved together, and it moves upward in a spiral. Spiral because as we grow and evolve together, we don't leave behind those kind of lower forms of consciousness. We take them with us and we build upon them. So I'll give a couple examples of some of what those layers are. So at the base layer of spiral dynamics, they each have colors, is beige. And beige is that animalistic urge to find shelter, food, water, sex procreate, stay safe. So there's at the very base of the human psyche of human consciousness is that need. Once you're, it's similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once you're able to move out of that space, then you get into the red. Red is about tribe, territory, power. So I have shelter, I have food, I have a, I have 
I have children. <laughs> now I have a tribe to protect. I have people to feed. So the need to fight, the need to hunt, the need to protect all kind of comes into collective awareness. Once you move out of that red, you get into purple, which is the kind of mystical way of seeing the world. Like all of a sudden, now you become aware of, I'm not making the sun shine down on us. I'm not causing the rain to fall. There must be something bigger than me, something greater, something outside of me doing this. So now you have a sun god, a rain god, a tree god, a plant god. And there's kind of an awareness of divinity. After that, you move into blue. Blue is the, the reasoning mind. So not only are you worshiping the sun god, now you're starting to look at it critically and you're starting to analyze things and, and science comes into the picture. Up and up and up we go. There's other colors and people are predicting what the next ones are. I think it's the awareness that religion is a part of that. <laughs> There's a tendency to want to separate religion from the human experience because it's meant to be transcendent. It's meant to be divine. It's meant to be, there's kind of this idea that it's up there somewhere. It's outside of our physical experience. It's outside of our human experience. It's godly. It's divine. And I think that creates a lot of devastation. <laughs> first of all, but also removes your awareness of how your beliefs have been shaped by culture and politics and power all around you. So I feel now that uh, it isn't that I have any interest in dismantling any worldview or, or any beliefs or anything like that. It's just kind of the conversation of how do we collectively decide what we believe about life and reality, ourselves, each other, and what does that do to us? You know, I actually think of that scripture that's like, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Like, what is the fruit of our belief? And is that fruit good to eat? And is that fruit we, fruit we want to eat? And if not, how can we learn to see differently together so that it is? I think that's I don't know a, if that answers your question. <laughs> I don't know if it did either, but I think it's a really beautiful way to perhaps tie a bow around this conversation and, and send that gift off into the world. I'm conscious of time and my realization, the longer that we chat, that this could easily go on for five to 10 hours or days <laughs> as we get into some of the, the higher level of whimsy and curiosity, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm so grateful for you to, to come and share such a personal part of your life so openly. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, anytime you want to come back, Tiff, to, to vibe about whatever the next steps are, I would love to, love to have yeah. you back for sure. Um, Can I say one thing? Please. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to just open the floor again. Like, hey, did, did we miss anything? Is there something that we, you need to really reinforce here? or to leave the audience with? I missed a big thing, a really big thing. I think in, in all of this, I think aside from understanding religion contextually, the place that I'm in now, 
which is the most important thing that I almost missed, is what I've learned about spirituality is to allow the mystery to be the practice. One of the biggest pieces I've had to let go of in the last seven years is what I like to call the theology of certainty. That is, that is what it was. For me, it's not about doubting Jesus. It's not about doubting God. It's not, it's not really about any of that. It's about letting go of needing to know everything, letting go of needing to understand the world, letting go of needing to make sense of it all. Because actually, ironically, even though that was handed to me as this is what spirituality is, it's to believe these certain set of beliefs. Ironically, what I have found is the more I let go of certainty and the more I release myself from having to know anything about divinity, because, you know, when I step back at it and look at it, I go, we live in a multiverse (laughs) of which we know nothing. (laughs) We know very little about our own universe, let alone the multiverse. We can theorize about 11 dimensions and we are only three dimensional creatures. What do I know? I'm only one person in one period of time, in one place, on one continent, in one city. The amount that I know, even compared to humanity, is nothing. And the amount that humanity can know about our universe and our multiverse, I mean, how can we even think we know what God is, if God is, where God is, how God is? So I think what I've learned is letting go of all of that, letting go of the theology of certainty, has actually gifted me with the only true spirituality that I have ever experienced, which is to recognize how miraculous it is that I am here, that I have breath in my body, that I can perceive the world around me, that I can perceive myself, that I can engage with other living, animate beings, all of that. It gives me chills just talking about it. All of that is where I find God. Like the word for Yahweh is actually just a breath. You're not even supposed to say Yahweh. Yahweh is the name for Jesus. It's like YWH something. I don't even know how you're supposed to pronounce it, but you pronounce it like a breath. That is God. God is the animacy of all things, the breath in all things, what what animates the world. And I I think, yeah, living with, with that mystery has enlivened more of a transcendent curiosity in me than any set of beliefs ever has, which is why I always say, no, I'll probably never be a Christian again. Not because I think Christianity is so wrong, but because I think any amount of certainty is not right for me. So I think, yeah, that's where I'm at is is really enjoying the mystery of being alive. Amen. Amen. Uh, (laughs) Good way to end it. Div, you're such a gem. I'm so glad we've reconnected. We had like a couple of years Thank break you. and then suddenly you popped up again. And I was like, oh yeah, Tiff. Thank you for having me. Honestly, I feel so honored to have been asked to be here. Thank you. Why? Because I think being recognized at all for having something to share that other people will find valuable makes my story feel even more rewarding to me to know that Mm. through all of that, not only did I come out feeling alive, but 
it's possible I could have something else to hand to someone to help them on their journey of feeling more alive. Hmm. Yeah, feels like an honor. And I really respect you. So it's ah. nice to be here with you. Thank you. And yeah, just to reaffirm, like your your voice matters, your story matters. And I'm sure that to everyone listening to this, it's like, that was a thing that has affected, uh, it's going to affect a lot of people, I think, in a positive way, if only to initiate a more curious and open-minded way of looking at the world, which I think is is healthy. Yeah. Uh, so where can people find you if they want to get in your world? Are you blogging still? Do you have a website, an Instagram account? Instagram's the best way. Tiff Berkowitz is probably the best way for people to find me. There are other things but, in the works, but it will always come through that channel. That will always be my way of sharing. Cool. I'll put a link in the show notes. And if you're listening, you can go and follow Tiff right now. If you've not already stopped the conversation and done so immediately. Um, this is great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate you. Look forward to more chats soon. Yeah. Thank you. Tiffany Berkowitz. What a gem she is, right? Big, shiny, brilliant, brave, and I'm sure lots of other adjectives that start with B. Bold being one. Uh, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you listening all the way through. Thanks for that. Thanks for the support. As I mentioned, if you want to check out Tiff, I've tagged her Instagram in the show notes below. You can check that out. And uh, yeah, sit with those stories that you just heard for a little while and maybe start to ponder the various bubbles that you live inside of that you might not actually recognize. What beliefs, what thoughts, what um, opinions about the world or your family or yourself do you share as a consequence of where you grew up? Anyway, have fun with that. That'll be a nice little exploration that'll tide you over for a week until the next episode. I appreciate you. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for sharing. Again, thanks for subscribing. Every five-star review does help get some guests and spread the word. So, so grateful for you. And uh, yeah, enjoy popping that bubble of belief that you might not even realize you're inside of. Wow, life is fun. <laughs>